Father, we thank you for, Lord, the word of God and the confidence that we can have in it. But we're grateful that if somebody were to, to come to us with those types of eternal questions, Lord, that confidently we can point them to your word, knowing that therein, Lord, uh, lies kind of the, the secret of eternal life, the truth of eternal life. And so, Lord, we do pray for opportunities. Lord, would you, uh, in a miraculous way, would you open those doors? People would come to us and be asking those kinds of questions and that we could point them to Jesus and that they would, their hearts would be open, they'd respond, and they'd believe, and that the power of the gospel will once more be evidenced. And Father, we thank you for the word of God. We know that it's alive. We know it's active. We know that it, it teaches us. It corrects some of our thinking. It trains us up in righteousness. And so we're praying that all those things might occur once more today as we dig in. We pray for all those distractions that oftentimes, Lord, just get us thinking about other things. We put those aside, and we ask that you would even by your spirit help us to keep those aside just for this next uh, hour or so to to receive and we pray that in your name amen now i'm sure some of you are thinking hour you mean an hour uh, we'll see we'll see where we go but uh, as i said we are in uh, acts chapter uh, 17 and you remember it was one of the final verses of acts chapter 15 in which paul's second missionary journey began uh, and you can look at that we've seen it a few times uh, already where Paul initially set out, you know, I want to go, I want to visit those churches that I've been to before. I want to encourage them once more. And then God began to stir him. All right, you visited the churches you've been to before, but the mission's not over. I want you to go to some other places as well. And as we saw together, we know that it began on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea. It began in what today we call the area of Turkey. And there they had all those regions, uh, the region of Asia, it was called Bithynia, Galatia, you may remember some of those names. That's where that second missionary journey began. And then it crossed over the Aegean Sea. It made its way to Europe. It made its way to what we today call the area of Greece, the western side of that body of water where they went to the region of Macedonia. And specifically, they went to that city of Philippi. And it was there in Philippi, we spent kind of two weeks on it, it was there in Philippi that Paul and, and Silas and Timothy and Luke, I don't want to forget them as well, but that little team of men where they ministered to that woman Lydia, the businesswoman, who they were able to lead to the Lord as well as her family. They ministered to that little slave girl that initially was annoying the Apostle Paul, but God had a plan for her life and she was converted to the faith. And then they ministered in prison to the jailer who either beat him, them himself or ordered other people to beat him. And they ministered to that guy and he got saved. And his whole household came to the faith. And there... In that city of Philippi, a church was born, a good, healthy, thriving church, as we saw in our times together there. Now, I have to imagine there were aspects of Philippi Paul wished he didn't have to deal with, the beatings, the being thrown into prison, to being chained to a wall, those things. I'm sure he would have liked to have put those things aside. But overall, this trip was a good and uh, bountiful trip, if you will. God did a good thing. And there's a there was a church established in Philippi. You can read further of the types of things that they were learning when Paul wrote the book to the people of Philippi, the church of Philippi. We call that the book of Philippians, and I encourage you to read that further. Now, chapter 16 ended, look at verse 40, 
It says, and so they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia, the woman I mentioned, and when they had seen the brothers, that's the others that came to the faith there in that city, they encouraged them and then they departed, they being Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We know that Luke stayed behind kind of as the pastor of this young church and helped establish them and get them to grow. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they moved on. And as we come now to chapter 17, we see where they moved on to. And so let's read. I'm going to read kind of the opening uh, seven or eight verses, maybe more. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is that Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the home of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, Paul, Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Excuse me. <clears throat> so let's go back and let's kind of talk through some of those concepts that we see here. All right, so first off, I love Luke. Luke describes three different cities. He talks about Amphipolis, he talks about Apollonia, and then he talks about Thessalonica. Just a matter of fact, they went from this city to that city to this city, and then they ended up there in Thessalonica. In actuality, what Luke is referring to, he's talking about, is over 100 miles of land between each of them. And so Philippi was about 33 miles from Amphipolis. Amphipolis was about 30 miles from Apollonia, and Apollonia was about 37 miles from Thessalonica. And you put all that together, and it adds up to about 100 miles. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they marched by foot, Oh, I don't know if a donkey came along or something, but they made their way over land over 100 miles to get to the next location, the next city of ministry, which is going to be this city of Thessalonica. We do have a map today, I believe. There it is. And this is our little map here. All right, so you see in the bottom right corner there, maybe it's small, maybe you can't see it, that's Judea. Jerusalem's down there. That's the land of Israel. You go north of that, you see a little arrow there, uh, the first arrow that points, that's Antioch. That's Syrian Antioch. That's where all of this missionary work started from back in chapter, I think it was 13 or so, or maybe even before that, that we looked. Now the red dot that is over there, all the way over there in Europe, that's the area of Philippi. That's where they had been before, and this little blue dot, that's Thessalonica. Now you look at that, that's 100 miles. It doesn't look like it, but that's 100 miles from one place to the other. Maybe if they went directly there, it would have been a little shorter. Um, but this is the area that we're talking about. So we're in the area of Europe. They had come from the area of what we call today Asia. They had come from the area of Turkey, and they're in this city here of Thessalonica. 
Thessalonica was like the city of Philippi in that it was a key city of the area of Macedonia. Amphipolis, small little village-ish. Apollonia, again, smaller in that nature. But Thessalonica and Philippi were two key cities of the region of Macedonia. Thessalonica in particular was a city that was strategically located on the major trade routes of the Roman Empire, both by land and by sea. And so it becomes a chief city of commerce there in the ancient world. There was a a famous road that ran from Rome, essentially all the way down to Jerusalem. And that road was called uh, the Ignatian Way. I'm probably saying it wrong, or the Via Ignata. Anybody know it? You heard of it? So I'll just make it up. It's the Via Ignata, as uh, Greg says here. And that road, as I said, it, runs, it ran from Rome across the boot to, to the other coast, across the Adriatic Sea, you take a boat, then you pick it up again, and it would go across the, what we call the area of Greece. It was a paved road. It was almost 2,500 years old. And it ran right into the main street of Thessalonica was, was connected to this road. So the road became the main street of Thessalonica, and then eventually can get you all the way down to Jerusalem. And so this particular city was going to see a lot of people coming into it, going through it, moving on to another place. And as we've been looking, that's Paul's strategy. Find these major cities, plant a church in that city, and then from there, ministry could go forth. And so Paul never shied away from these major centers of activity. Rather, as we see, especially on this second missionary journey, he seeks them out. And he seeks him out, as I said, that he might preach there, might establish a church there, and then from there conduct uh, ministry outreach efforts. And he was effective in doing so. And so as Paul did in just about every city that we've been looking at, he, he looked for a place where he could have something in common with his listeners. And for Paul, that place was the synagogue. And we see that again happening here in Uh, chapter 17 look at verse 2 and so Paul went in as was his custom this is what he did in every one of the cities that we've been looking at and when they didn't have a synagogue where'd he go to the river's edge where there'd be a place of prayer and so as was his custom on three sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures as it goes on to say explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to rise from the dead So Luke points out, Luke's the writer of the book of Acts, he points out that on three Sabbaths, Paul opened the scripture to them. Now specifically, what he opened to them were the scriptures that allowed for him to explain and to prove the necessity of the Christ to suffer, to die, and to rise again. So he likely turned them to places like Isaiah chapter 53 or Psalm 22. He brought them to these places and explained to them how they pointed out that the Christ was going to suffer and die, which is what we all know that Jesus did. And for three straight weeks, he would go to that synagogue, open up the word of God to them, open up their, what we call Old Testament, a book that they said they believed in and trust to be God's word, and he would explain convincingly from those scriptures and show how they predicted that the Messiah would go through these things. Notice this also about Paul's preaching. There's three things I see here. Number one, where does he begin? He begins with the scriptures. Now, he might have told a little joke to start to to lighten up the crowd or something like that. 
but he dig, gets right into the scriptures. He doesn't talk about his experiences to, to begin with. He doesn't talk about stories or anything like that, or I once heard any of these things. He goes to the scripture. As it says in verse 2, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And the reason is because Paul was supremely confident, as I hope each one of us are as well, but Paul was supremely confident that the scriptures are the word of God and that God has promised to bless his word. Isaiah chapter 55 says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so Paul knew that even in just reading the word, showing people the word of God, that God could do a miraculous work through the word of God. And so the central focus of his message was God's word. He opened the scripture to them. The second thing that we see here is also in verse 2, and there it says that he reasoned with them. Now, the Greek word for reasoned there is the root for where we get the word dialogue. The, the Greek word is dialogomei. Can you hear dialogue kind of in there, dialogomei? I, mean, I don't know if that's how you say it, but I'm doing my best. Jair, would you help me with the Greek pronunciation? But you can see, especially written down, you can see it looks like our English word dialogue. He dialogued with them from the scriptures. That, that implies, or it's it meant to communicate, there was a back and forth. There were questions and there were answers. Yeah, but what about this? Or I had always heard that. Well, you know what? You need to go back to this passage. And so he dialogued with them from the scriptures didn't just simply quote it to them, but he pointed people to a passage, he encouraged them to think about that passage, he asked them questions about that passage so that they would be forced to give back to him answers, and he, all of this especially with Jesus in mind. And I think the important thing for us to see here is that the word of God is reasonable, it's logical, it makes sense. Now, we may not understand every single part of it, especially if we're just picking it up for the first time, but as we consider it, as we dig into it, we can be confident in who it is and what it is saying. And Paul was. Again, he was supremely confident in the word of God, and he was quite comfortable where the word of God would bring people, that people that would look at it, sit under it, think about it, discuss it amongst themselves, where that would take them. And so he reasoned with them from the scripture. Third thing that we see here, it says in verse 3, he explained the scripture to them. Some of your versions may say this. Literally, that is, he opened the scriptures to them. He explained it to them. He opened it to them so that they could understand it. Sometimes I think a preacher thinks they're successful if his congregation is confused when they leave because then he showed them all the knowledge he has and he, he got them all twisted and all confused and nobody could bring up anything because they didn't understand anything. That's not success in preaching. The most, you know, the greatest compliment that I think we could receive is, I get it. You're not very smart, but I get it. <laughs> you know, they explain it, you explain it in such a way that people can understand it. And sometimes people approach it and think about this from the perspective of you're having kind of this one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone that because they initially don't agree with you, you think now they've become your adversary, and so you want to beat them, and you want to kind of belittle them. You want to give them, break them down like to the place of submission so that they give up. They're like, well, you're smarter than I am. 
but they don't agree with you. They don't understand it. You didn't explain it really to them. You just intimidated them with your big words. Well, what good is that? That wasn't Paul's goal. That wasn't his desire. He wanted them to understand it, not to beat them with his superior thinking or confuse them to the point of submission. And so he set out to explain it to them. And if they didn't get it, he said, all right, let me try this. And he used a different analogy or a different way that hopefully they could come to the place where they would understand it and they would receive it. That was his desire, and that's what he did during those three weeks there going to that synagogue service. His goal, again, was that they would understand it. Now, specifically, what he wanted to understand, Luke writes in verse 3, that he would prove that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. He was talking to them about the Messiah. The Messiah is another, it's the same word as Christ, just from a different kind of root. And both of those words mean the anointed one. And so he's trying to talk to them about the Messiah, ultimately prove that Jesus is the Messiah. These, remember, these were Jews, synagogue, these were Jews that he was speaking of. These were people that were very familiar with the term Messiah or Christ or anointed one and had given a lot of thought to the Messiah. These were people that were anxiously awaiting the coming of the Messiah. I think I've told you this before, when uh, a, a Jewish woman would give birth, if it was a little boy, they had like a little bit of an extra party. Not because they didn't like little girls, but they knew that the boy would, a boy would one day grow up to be the Messiah. This could be the one. So they were anxiously awaiting the coming of the Messiah. Now what they did not understand is what his arrival, initial arrival especially, would look like. You remember even Jesus' closest disciples didn't understand what it was looking like. And right as they're coming to the crucifixion, they're asking him about ruling and reigning. And that's what many were looking for with that initial uh, coming. For you and I, sitting here, kind of clear, we've studied this stuff, we think about it, we know that God was going to ascend, was going to send an anointed one, a Christ, in two separate comings, two advents. A first advent where he would suffer and he would die on our behalf, and a second advent where he would rule and reign as he established his righteous kingdom. But many of the Old Testament Jews, many of the New Testament era Jews didn't understand that, didn't get that, completely missed the point about the suffering Messiah and focused their intention instead on the reigning righteous Messiah, the one who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and set up the Jewish people essentially as princes and overlords of others. That's what they were looking for. With the hindsight of the New Testament, with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you and I get it. They, they had trouble getting it. Even, again, Jesus' own disciples had trouble getting it. You remember after Jesus rose from the dead, one of their first questions of him was, now are you going to set up the kingdom? Is it now? They, they still didn't understand all of this. And so Paul here is going to explain it to them. Now, if you have read through the Old Testament, you've sat in studies and things like that, you, you know that there are prophecies which talk about the reigning king. There are also prophecies which talk about the suffering king. For us, we look at it and we're like, yeah, he's going to suffer. 2,000 years later or more, he'll come back and he'll reign. We understand that. Again, they didn't. And so for many of the Jews in the first century, they began to develop a concept or an idea that there were actually two different messiahs. They have a name for it. The first messiah not necessarily in any particular order, the reigning Messiah 
became known as Messiah ben David. Messiah, the son of David. You remember David was the reigning king. The second Messiah they referred to as Messiah ben Joseph, referring to the book of Genesis Joseph that suffered and, and went through so much and became a servant and slave and, and all of that. And they saw Messiah ben David as separate from Messiah ben Joseph. And what Paul is doing here in this synagogue in Thessalonica, Thessalonica is explaining, no, no, it's one and the same. And again, as you see in verse 3 there, this Jesus who I proclaim to you, he is the Messiah, he would explain. Through a dialogue with his listeners, Paul proved, as Luke says, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And as you look at verse 4, some of them were persuaded. Some of them joined Paul and Silas. They, they joined the church, so to speak. They became followers of Christ. He goes on and he says, as did a great many of the devout. So some of the Jews sitting there in that synagogue, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, the God-fearers, people like Lydia that grew up as a Gentile but began to follow Jehovah. And he says, and not a few of the leading women of the city. Some were persuaded. And that's oftentimes how it is. You can present your message and this couple of people here, they'll get it. And those couple of people here won't get it. And these will receive and respond, and those same message won't receive and respond. Some, as it says here, joined Paul and Silas, no doubt in a different location, not there in the synagogue where Paul and Silas would teach them further. They would study the scriptures even further of what it means to walk with the Lord. And then there were others that rejected that. Now, I want to make a quick note here for some that may be aware of this. It says there that Paul reasoned in the synagogue for three weeks. There's a lot of people that conclude that Paul was only in Thessalonica for a total of three weeks. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think he, was, he went to the synagogue there in the town for three weeks, and then he met with believers somewhere else, probably in Jason's home, where they established sort of this little church meeting space, and he began to teach the people of Thessalonica Further, Part of the reason why I think that is in the book of Philippians. This may, none of you may be interested in this, but there may be a few that, I thought he was only there three weeks. It seems like he was there quite a bit longer. Because in the book of Philippians, Paul says this, when he's writing to the people of Philippi, he says, even, uh, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And that seems to imply to me that he needed more than three weeks for the aid to come 100 miles to get to him and more than three weeks to be in need because he already spent all the last aid that had come to him. Either way, it seems that Paul is there to me, that he's, Paul, he's there in Thessalonica for an extended period of time, initially reaching out to the Jews, and then when some had received, he gets aside and he begins to teach them, disciple them, grow them in the faith in a church-like setting. Either way, how wonderful, a church is born. Another church, one was born in Philippi, another one is now born in Thessalonica. And Paul and uh, Silas must have been delighted. Look what the Lord's doing. As they would look out and they'd see the people that were teaching. Delighted until, look at verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, fun way to say that, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jacob, excuse me, Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Some were persuaded, but others weren't persuaded. 
And in, in actuality, they went out to persuade some others. It says there that they rounded up the wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob uh, and they set the city in an uproar. And why did they do this? Was it because, well, these guys are teaching a false message or leading people astray. We have to stop them. We have to preserve our religion. It, it wasn't that at all. Nothing noble, kind of like that. Rather, as it says in the verse there, uh, in verse 5, because they were jealous. They were envious of Paul and Silas. Hey, you're taking people from our synagogue. You're leading them away. They, those Greeks, they were our converts. We converted them to the true God. You're taking them away. And more people, it seems, or a number of people were going and following Paul and Silas, and ultimately Jesus, and these synagogue leaders became jealous of that. They became envious of that. And that's why they want to put a stop to it. Not for anything pure like you're leading people astray. Sad. And so, as it says, they stirred up the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. And then we're, mentioned, we're uh, introduced to a fellow here who's just mentioned, a fellow by the name of Jason. They go down to this guy's house, and they're, they're going to arrest him, essentially, or drag him out of the house. Now, Jason was probably, we don't know much more about him, but he was probably a convert there in Thessalonica of the ministry of, the ministry of Paul and Silas. It's, it seems as if that's where Paul and Silas are staying, or perhaps that's where the church is meeting, but it seems for some reason that the rabble, the mob, has a feeling that Paul and Silas are going to be at this guy's house. So they go to that particular guy's house, and when they can't find Paul and Silas, they drag this guy, Jason, out into the street instead. And they begin to attack him, and it, it even says uh, the others that are with him are uh, Jason and some of the brothers. They drag them out, and they thrust them before the city authorities. Two accusations are brought, ultimately brought against Paul and Silas, but they're not there, so we'll, we'll bring it against this guy, Jason. The first one, in verse 6, it says, these, they, they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And then they say, and Jason's given them sort of a place of refuge, and so it's his fault too. And then the second one, you see it's in verse 7. It says, and they are acting against all the decrees of Caesar by saying that there was another king, Jesus. It's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul was very careful with his message and how he referred to Jesus and stuff. Five times in Paul's writing, Paul wrote over half of the New Testament, only five times in Paul's writing is, is this idea of kingship and Jesus being a king mentioned. He was careful with that. That was not the message that he was preaching that could have been sort of misunderstood or something like that. We're not trying to overthrow Caesar. Jesus didn't try and overthrow Caesar. That's not what Paul was setting out to do, but that's the accusation that is brought against them. Number one, they're turning the world upside down. Number two, they're trying to overthrow Caesar. And they bring this guy Jason out because, you know, he's been assisting these terrible outlaws that they are, quote unquote. Interesting charges. The first is actually more of a compliment than a criminal charge. I imagine a lot of us would love it said of us, oh my gosh, this guy is like transforming Morrisville, Pennsylvania, Ewing Township, New Jersey, Bucks County, some of this guy is uh, turning the world upside down. I'm sure Paul and Silas, when they heard about this charge, they were probably honored a bit. Oh, that's so cool. 
that you would say that, Lord, this is amazing what you're doing, that people actually think that. Because that's exactly what they set out to do. Turn the world upside down, or perhaps more properly, turn it right side up again. Because we live in a fallen world, a, a world that has, uh, was great until the third chapter of the book of Genesis, when sin entered in and it sort of fell on its head. And Paul is entering in, trying to bring people back into right relationship with God. And in doing so, turning the world right side up. So that's the first charge. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. That's so nice of you. The second charge, however, was simply not true. And it was a very serious charge that was brought against Paul and Silas, and specifically here this guy Jason in the midst of it. And again, Paul and Silas, they weren't preaching the overthrow of the Roman Empire. But here's an interesting thing. Even if they were, this would be a strange thing for the Jews here to be so zealous about safeguarding. Because the Jewish people despised the Roman government. And the Jewish people would gladly overthrow the Roman government if they had the power to overthrow the Roman government. And so you would expect, if these were honest people, they would be like, look, I don't know so much about your message, but I like where it's leading. Go for it, or something like that. And yet, clearly, they're looking for some kind of a charge that is going to cause Paul and Silas to get in the most trouble that they possibly can get in. And so they say, look, they're sedition, treason. They're trying to overthrow the government. A very serious charge. In about 30 uh, years uh, and, and beyond that, for the next 100 or so years, thousands of Christians will be killed for this very reason. But they're not there yet in the nation but that's what, or in the empire, but that's what they're bringing up. And you'll, you see how serious a charge it is. Look in verse 8. It says, Now the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And the reason why they were disturbed when they heard these things is if somebody is like fomenting a revolution in our city, it's just a matter of time before the Roman soldiers come to this city to put it down. And the Roman soldiers don't come in and ask all sorts of questions and, and find out who's really. They just start swinging fists and hammer and sticks and all that stuff at everybody. And so, as we see here in verse 8, the people of the city, they are disturbed. They're bothered by this. Something, they need to put an end to it. And so they don't have act any actual evidence against Paul and Silas, just a mob that is saying that's what they said. And now this Jason fellow, and so they, they put the screws on him here, and they require that Jason make a payment as security. That sounds almost like bail. Like, you know, you come back here next week. Um, so we, we make sure you come back to this trial. You give us some money right now, bail. But in the context, it doesn't seem like that's what it was. It seems more like it was that Jason had to agree that Paul and Silas would leave town. And when they did, maybe he would get his money back. But it's not real clear exactly what this whole security deposit thing was for. What is clear is the next verse, Paul and Silas leave town. And so once more, just like it happened in uh, Antioch, Pisidia, and as it happened in Iconium, and as it happened in Lystra, and as it happened, as we saw last week, in the city of Philippi, once more, Paul and his team are opposed by a mob determined to put a stop to their ministry efforts. And now you can add to that list the city of Thessalonica. And so with that active threat, look at verse 10, the brothers immediately they send Paul and Silas away by night to the town of Berea. 
And when they arrived, they went into, yes, you get to a new city, where does Paul go? Into the Jews. Then it makes sense, right? It's all logical, it flows. So the people in Philippi is like, look, we love you guys. There's a lot of ministry. We are established. You taught us. You guys need to get out of here for your safety. And so Paul and Silas, they go, as it says there, to Berea. I think we have another map of this one, don't we? So remember the red one was Philippi. The blue one was Thessalonica. um, Berea is the green one. It's inland. It's about 60 miles inland. And these guys are going all over the place walking. I don't know if I would drive 60 miles. Ah, That's too far. I don't know if I can get there. These guys are walking to this next particular town. They go to the city of Berea. And when they arrive there in Berea, they follow their familiar strategy. They go to the synagogue. Verse 11, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so Antioch, um, Thessalonica, Philippi, Lystra, all these places where they're going, they're getting beaten, they're getting thrown in jail, they're at risk of these things happening to them, and now they come into a new city, and, and I don't know, you would think like, you know what, let's just hang low, just for a little while here, I don't want any trouble again, I need to get a break. But Paul and Silas, they get right to ministry. They're not going to be dissuaded. They knew that their ministry efforts were going to come with difficulty. This is what the difficulty looked like. And they didn't just stop and say, well, I don't like it. I'm not doing it. They continue to do what God had been calling them to do. To use sort of a phrase of the scriptures, they dust the the dirt of their feet from Thessalonica off their feet, and they just moved on to the next city and Berea. And they got right back to it, and they began to teach and to preach the word of God. And they did it, as it says here, in a synagogue. Now, Luke begins his testimony of this little town, Berea, and he begins by commending the Jews that are there in that city, that smaller city. Again, look at verse 11. He says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, generally, we don't like to compare people that we minister to. You know, well, he's a good brother. This one over here, hey. You know, we don't like to do this kind of comparison. But Paul's point here, excuse me, Luke's point here is to commend the people of Berea for their approach to Paul's teaching. That's really what he's commending. That's why he's setting up sort of this comparison between these two groups of people. And there's two things in particular that uh, he commends them for. The first one is in verse 11. It says they receive the word with all eagerness. And then also in verse 11, secondly, he says, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Bereans, these people of Berea, maybe you've heard the phrase, you know, be a Berean. This is where it comes from. These Bereans, they sat, they listened to the Apostle Paul. They had an open and a teachable attitude for when Paul or Silas taught. They wanted to learn They were open to learning. Luke even goes out to point out in verse 11 how they were eager to learn. So they were a very receptive people. That's what we want to be. We want to be receptive to what God might have for us. We want to come to the word of God every time that we're sitting in our little chair at home. And we want to say, Lord, would you open my heart to what you have for me today? 
I've read this passage before. It's a familiar passage before. I don't want to miss what it is you have to say for me. Lord, I want to learn from you today. They were eager to receive from the Lord. They went to their church service, their synagogue service here, and they said a little prayer before service began to themselves. Lord, teach me what you have for me today. They wanted to learn. At the same time, they weren't gullible and naive. And they weren't just accepting anything that the guy up front had to say because he was the guy that was up front. And so they took what Paul said, they processed it, they thought about it, and then they went to their Bibles, probably when you know they were at the Cafe 72 after service here, and they said, let's talk about what he said today. You know, he referenced Isaiah 53, but I didn't have my Bible in front of me. Let's look at it now together. And they examined the scriptures to see if they agreed with Paul's teaching. So again, they didn't just walk out of the synagogue talking about, you know, he was such a good speaker, or he was funny today. Wasn't he funny? Or these things. That's not what they were interested in. They wanted to discuss what Paul taught them. And then they wanted to compare it with the word of God to see if what Paul was saying was actually true. And notice, this doesn't offend the apostle. This may offend a lot of people. I can't believe you would question whether what I said was true. Don't you know I'm the learned teacher? Don't you know that I've been to many years of schooling and all this stuff? You just accept what I say. Paul's not offended by this. Remember, Luke's not here. Luke's in Philippi which means Paul or Silas told Luke what happened there and does so in a glowing way. Those guys were awesome. Every one of them was sitting there ready to receive, but then I saw in little small little groups, they were opening their Bibles to see if what I said was true. Fantastic. Paul loved it. He wasn't upset by it. He wasn't bothered by it. Rather, he held the people of, Thessal excuse me, of Berea in high esteem because they didn't just blindly accept what he had to say. Notice this also about the Jews there. So they were eager to receive the word. They examined the word. as it, That's what it says here in verse 11, examining the scriptures. The word examine there, it means to investigate. It means to scrutinize. It's a word that is used in the few examples in scripture where a person is kind of put on trial and, you know, the the. Per, the the group of people up there are going to interrogate the person. That's the word that is used there. So it's this idea of they interrogated the scripture. They put the big light on it. They looked on it. Where were you on the night? You know, these kinds of things. They wanted to know if these things that Paul said were true were indeed true. They did the hard work of investigating God's word and comparing it with Paul's teaching. A lot of times we don't, well, he probably knows what he's saying. And so you don't want to do the hard work. We have to, especially in this world we live. You turn your TV on. There's Bible teachers on lots of channels on your TV. Are they good? Well, how would we know unless we're examining them to see if they're good? You get in your car, you turn on Christian radio, and you hear the message that comes. Is it a good message that comes forth? How would you know? Well, you examine it to see if it lines up with the Scripture. I don't feel like doing that. I just want to get in the car and relax. All right. Then let that junk come into your, if it is junk, it might be great. But let that come into your life. And don't do anything about it. Don't set up the gate. Don't examine it and see what it does to you. I, I told you this before. I used to, I don't know why I do this. I should stop. And I have. But I, I used to put on, you know, the, the preachers that are on TV. 
and I would just watch them, and I'd be watching to the point I just want them to say that thing I don't agree with, and then I'm going to say, see, they're garbage. I don't know what I'm trying to get out of this, uh, but that's what I would do to myself there. And then one day, I noticed, because I had listened to three minutes of this guy and five minutes of that guy and ten minutes of that guy, I noticed it begin to seep into me. And as I was sort of thinking and praying one time, a prayer in some setting, I noticed that I was tempted to almost say what I was seeing on the TV, but it was garbage. And I was like, oh, Lord, I haven't had the gate up as much as I needed to have the gate up. I wasn't on my guard. I wasn't examining these things and being careful with these things as I needed to be. So these guys do that. They do the hard work of that. You need to do that. When some new doctrine kind of comes in and kind of floats around in the church or on Facebook, the little meme things that they put out there, you need to be careful with those things. Examine, see if they line up with the word of God. Second thing, notice this. They did that daily. Not just sun, uh, Saturday after service, not just once in a while here and there, but this idea of daily demonstrates to us that they were diligent about an extended study of God's word, which is what we all need to be until the day we come to the end of our days. This is not the type of book we read one time, we got the gist, we know what it's about, maybe we'll read it again in 10 years, you know, or something like that. It's a book that we're digging into on a daily basis, examining the word to see if these things are so. They did that. And the third thing, the third reason why that they are more noble than others, notice it says they examine the scriptures daily to see, to understand. These Bereans believed that you could go to the word of God and actually get answers. That you could go to the word of God and understand the word of God. There are a lot of people that are intimidated by the Bible. Oh my gosh, it's such a big book. And it, it's in like this kind of mysterious, poetic, you know, spiritual language that only, you know, the, the learned priests could explain to us. There are some Christian movements that actually encourage the followers, the congregation, don't open the Bible for yourself. It'll be too confusing. We'll explain it to you. Yeah. You can open, every one of us, can open the word of God for ourselves and understand. That's what these Bereans knew. And so they went to the scriptures, not just to kind of check off, yeah, I studied my Bible today, I read my Bible today, but they went to the scriptures for understanding. They went there that they might see. They didn't see their Bibles as some confusing book that only the religious elite could understand, but they saw the Bible as truth and that it was a truth that they could know and they could understand. The Bereans wanted to know, are these things so? Does this man teach the truth? Does his teaching line up with the scriptures? And the only way that you can find that out is by digging into the scriptures and looking. The only way to test any system of doctrine is by comparing it to the word of God. And that's what the Bereans did. That's what we are trying to do as well. And as I uh, mentioned earlier, sadly, there are a lot of teachers who want people just to accept what they say simply because they say it. Now, if anybody could have taken that approach, it was probably the Apostle Paul. I'm going to be writing about this later. You know, you can trust me on this one here. And yet the Apostle Paul was delighted that these people didn't believe him, but they dug in to see if these things were so. Again, that's where we get this phrase that you sometimes hear, don't believe me, be a Berean. Look into the word of God for yourself. Now this reveals something about the Apostle Paul. Paul 
wasn't afraid of his congregation there diligently searching the scriptures. It wasn't like, you know, if they do, they're going to see that I was lying. They're going to see if these things weren't true. Paul said, have at it. I completely trust that you can dig into the word of God and come to the same conclusion that I came to. Here, I'll give you my Bible. You can dig in there if you'd like yourself. Paul knew that if they were really seeking God in his word, that they would find out that what Paul was preaching was true, which is exactly what happens. Look at verse 12. And many of them, notice that word, therefore, believed. They were going home, studying the word, and what conclusion are they going to come up to? Well, therefore, they're going to believe like Paul believed. Paul knew that. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well, as men. Years later, Paul would write this. He would say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is power in the word of God, and faith comes to those who are in it. And Paul encouraged these people of Berea, and I, I just want to encourage you. If your time in the word is just Sunday mornings, you're missing what the Lord would have for you. Jesus said not... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's, it's our sustenance. It's our food. And if you're only getting into the word once a week, if you're only kind of listening to what somebody else might say, if you're only letting somebody else sort of dissect it and bring it for you, you're missing what the Lord would have for you. And I, I just want to encourage you, you know, we're in the beginning of a year. Oh, I'll wait till next January 1st, and I'm going to do it now. Get into the word, take a small portion each day that you can read, that you can think about, that you can chew on. Maybe you match it up with some scripture, with uh, some commentary that kind of like gives you some context and Paul's in this city and he's doing that and those people like this so that you can understand it and then meditate on it and apply it to your life. The entrance of thy word bringeth life, the scripture says. So here's Paul, here's Silas, they're in Berea, Timothy with them. It's, it's probably a very exciting time for the apostle and the others that are with them. There's no other city in the book of Acts that we read about where the people were so honest in their seeking. We're coming into service, sitting there, all right, give me what you got, and ready to receive, eager to receive and apply these things to their life. There's no other city in the scriptures like it but Berea. And this must have been a very exciting time, and I imagined the apostle Paul going back to wherever it is that he was staying after a great day of ministry and seeing the people with their Bibles and their pens and everybody receiving and, and kind of Paul sitting in a chair, easy chair, and just go, ah, this city's awesome. And just resting in the goodness of the Lord and what he was doing in that city until the next verse, which says essentially suddenly there was a commotion outside and people banging on the door to get in, which we'll look at next time we're together. So I hope you can make it for that. You can read other parts of your Bible. Don't read ahead. I don't want you to ruin the story. All right? You can read ahead if you want to, but read, read your scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Lord, there are days where we can take a deep breath and we can just settle in and say, wow, what a neat thing the Lord has done. And there's no problems like Paul is experiencing at this moment in time in Berea. And maybe, Lord, that describes where some of us are right now. Life is great. Everything is wonderful. There's no difficulties. Lord, I pray that you would bless those of us that are in that spot just to enjoy that moment in time, that period in time.
to enjoy your presence in that. And Lord, we know that difficulties will come. In this world, we will have tribulations. But Lord, you have promised, take heed. I have overcome the world. And so Lord, if we're in the midst of a real challenge right now, I pray that your presence would be felt there as well for each one of us. We will know that you have never left us and you will never forsake us, but you're right there with us. And we pray that you would bring a, a sense of encouragement and refreshment by that knowledge. Lord, I pray for every one of us to be more like these Bereans. Lord, to take your word of God, to be confident in your word of God, to be digging into the word of God for full understanding. Lord, the word of God is indeed able to teach us and to train us and to correct us and to rebuke us even. Guide us in the way of righteousness. And so, Lord, I just ask that for every one of us, we would go a little bit deeper by the prompting of your Holy Spirit in a knowledge of you and your word. And I ask that in Jesus' name.